There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hundreds of people are paying their respects right now to two fallen St. Petersburg police officers. Sergeant Thomas Batinger and Officer Jeffrey Yaslowitz were shot Monday trying to arrest a dangerous felon. Our Carson Chambers is live in St. Petersburg. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Crillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today's topic, finding narratives off the news. So I figured we'd just dive in, talk about some of the stories you've worked on, and see what lessons we pull from those. I wanted to start with Lorraine Yaslowitz. Talk about her and her husband, if you would, and, and how you got that story, how you convinced her to to let you be with her and obviously give people a little backstory. So we had this um, awful year, or actually I think it was within a month at the times of a few years ago where three police officers got killed. Um, and they had all these huge, giant funerals for the police officers. And I was one of several reporters who got sent to cover the um, the funeral of Jeffrey Yaslowitz. So I'm feeding, I'm not writing the story, I'm like sending feeds, and there was a right-through person, but everybody kind of had a different place at this funeral where there was like five or six hundred people. And um, there was, first of all, he was a, a drug dog guy, so there was this big, beautiful German shepherd that kept crying throughout the whole funeral. And this woman kept coming up and trying to hug the dog, and then all these other little kids kept coming up and hugging on her. So I'm watching this scene unfold, and I asked one of the other police officers near me, I said, who is that? He said, oh, that's his widow. That's Lorraine. And I said, oh, he said, I said, who are those little kids? He said, well, two of them, no, three of them were hers, but the rest are her kindergartners. She's a kindergarten teacher. So I just got this moment of, like, complete sadness washing over me about like you think how awful it is for, to lose a cop for a cop to get shot in the line of duty but here's not only his dog crying and his wife crying and his kids crying but a whole crop of five year olds who had known him as like brave officer Yaslowitz who come to kindergarten and brought this drug dog and it, it, I started thinking about how for a lot of these kids it's probably the first time they've ever known anybody that's died especially so suddenly you know not like a grandparent being sick with cancer and I thought about how this I was trying to think about how would you talk to these kids about this like when she has to go back to school and she has to go get her life and her kids life back on track whenever that is she's also got to face 35 year olds and so what is that going to look like and I just had this you know sometimes you get this idea of like oh in the world most perfect world I could get this story about her going back to kindergarten on the very first day so I emailed her principal and I told him I had this idea and I think I sent a couple of my other little encounters that I'd done um, and the principal said well I'll forward it to her but it's going to be up to her it's fine by me you know but I figured I'd get permission first instead of asking her who would then have to say I have to ask my principal 
I mean, I also kind of wanted to feel the principal out about, like, was she okay? Because I didn't want to make anything harder on her, you know? Um, so anyway, I emailed her, and she emailed me back, and she said, um, you know, I'm going back this, this upcoming, like, two weeks later on a Monday. She's like, I don't want to interfere with the kids because I do want to talk to them, and I want to try to normalize everything for them. So if you want to come and just watch and witness for the day, it's fine, but don't talk to me and interview me or interview the kids during the day. It's going to be just a, like, an observational piece only. She's a perfect narrative subject, yes. <laughs> and I was like, that was what a great gift. I can totally shut the hell up, you know, and let things unfold. So I met her like an hour, maybe hour and a half before kindergarten started, and we had coffee in her little office off the kindergarten room, and I got to do all my interviewing then, um, pretty much. And then went through the day of the kindergarten class, and she really, she didn't bring it up. You know, she didn't like directly address losing her husband, but it came up in all these little subtle ways. And the kids weren't sure where to react or how to react so there was this interesting tension about them taking care of her and her taking care of them you know and so we just followed her to the end of the school day I think I spent maybe another half an hour with her after the kids left the classroom um and then Rebecca wrote it that day so it was a really quick turnaround um so, I mean, the officer's death, obviously, there's a lot of different stories that come off of that, and a lot of different people affected. Um, could be a co-worker of his. It could be one of his children, his wife, obviously. Um, and I think one of the keys in writing narratives off the news is you figure out which 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 person you're going to focus on. What angle are you going to take? What is the story? And so you found it there in that moment at the funeral, and you found, like, okay. And you were willing to be patient, and you were willing to wait for it to play out, right? And I think that's one of the things sometimes, I mean, looking in the moment, it, it, you might the more compelling story might be a week from now or two weeks from now or six months from now. Absolutely. And, and I also think, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for something different. What, what angle is nobody else doing? Because there were probably... 18 reporters there between print and TV but you know so where can I zig when someone else zags but also just putting yourself in the mindset of that person what would it be like to be that person you know and, and trying really hard to imagine what their world looks like and, and, and then being able to explode that piece of it so you were thinking about this woman as a teacher not not as necessarily you know as his wife she had different things going on and probably whatever conversations she's going to have with her children which that in and of itself might be a story but then you're thinking of her in that dynamic of, of yeah what does that look like and again, it's like a, a kind of a universal setting, you know. Right. Everybody can remember being in kindergarten. Everybody can remember the first time they knew somebody who died. And yeah. Um, what I pulled here to read is just the beginning of her day, which is how you started the story, right? And and I think um, as you read this, I think people can be listening for the, par- the, the, the things that Lane was talking about, how it wasn't even forced, but there are some moments that are just clearly they connect to her life, as you, as you can as you can see as she reads this beginning. Okay, the story's called Her First Day Back. Okay, everybody, push your chairs in and stand up, she called at 8.30 Wednesday morning. Sixteen kindergartners placed their right hands over their hearts. They all pledged allegiance, like always. Ms. Yaslowitz scanned her classroom. It felt good to be back. At least here, everything seemed the same. She still had her desk and small plastic chair, a peanuts pillow. On the far wall was our, was our house, with slots for each student's name. A poster beside it asked, How do you feel today? Cartoon faces offered, Happy, sad, excited, sorry, angry, hopeful. Today, she could circle them all. 
Now I want you all to check out your songbooks, she said, weaving between the round tables. I saw you on TV, said a boy named Benny. You were on the news, so I brought you this. He gave her a stuffed Snoopy clutching a red silk rose. Nevia gave her an apple. Benjamin came in late, carrying a small heart-shaped balloon. Oh, thank you, she said. I missed you all so much. Now, what song do you want to sing first? The students flipped through their printed pages. No one asked where she'd been or about what happened. No one mentioned the stamp-sized photo of her husband smiling from a black cord around her throat. Heart power, a girl called out, holding her book to the newest song. Healthy bodies, said a boy. So they sang them both. Halloween night, called another boy. Oh, now we're going way back, the teacher said. A sad smile spread across her face. I'd like to go back. What was the reaction to that story? I imagine um, it was pretty powerful. Yeah, I think she got more of an outpouring than I did. She, she got a ton of, of love and support from the community and, and people who actually were surprised she wanted to go back at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the story got a lot of readers, but I, I didn't get, like, results right. from it, you know. Right. You just struck a chord, though, with people. Yeah. So you, I was going to ask you what you're looking for in a story off the news, and you you answered a little bit ago. In one fashion, you're, you're looking... Um, for that, you know, you're looking to answer. There's a person that intrigues you, and you're thinking to yourself, "What, what would this be like? What, what, what must they be going through?" Right? Yeah, I'm trying to spread out the ripples. You know, a, a lot of times there's a, a, a big national or statewide story that happens, and you know, somebody gets killed or, or somebody gets arrested, but the ripple effect of that can go so far and wide within the community, you know, so this was almost like playing out as far as you can go, and there's a kindergarten who's being affected by a cop who got shot, who, you know what I mean? So I yeah. tried to, I covered the uh, Virginia Tech shootings, and, and there were 900 reporters at Blacksburg that day, and I was trying to find one little person who was trying to carve out some meaning or, or sense of normalcy in the aftermath of that instead of giving a broad blanket of like what this looks like the day after, you know. Which can can resonate too. I mean, sometimes that's a better way to tell the story, right? Okay. I, I've always liked that piece of it. I know reporters do like to go in and give you the whole big broad brush and set the big context on the scene, but I like to like zoom in as small as I can and find a stakeholder and maybe an unexpected stakeholder, you know. So many of these kinds of stories involve tragedy, and you know, you're asking people to revisit the worst moments of their lives. How do you approach those conversations? I think I try to not dwell on it. I try to talk about what happens next. I, I mean, I, I, know, I remember asking Lorraine, like, when did you get the news about your husband being shot, and how did you tell your children? But I wasn't asking her to recreate all of that tragedy because that's already been reported, right? So I kind of I'd like to rely on, like, one quick paragraph about what happened and then make the rest about my piece of that news, not retelling that tragedy again and again. Right. So we've mentioned this story before, but you went to, um, when Travion Martin was shot and killed in, in 2012, you went to Sanford. And so, obviously, again, a story that everyone's covering and everyone's descending on this place and trying to find an angle. Um and I assume you walked in with some sense of desperation, like, what do you do differently? What- yeah, absolutely. The photographer and I were sent, like, three days later when this thing blew up to a national story. We, we should have been on the ground sooner, to tell you the truth. But we went three days after it happened, and um, you couldn't get in. 
because it was a gated community. So I remember we parked across the street, and we were sitting there kind of watching the gates, trying to figure out, like, how can we get in there? What can we do? And we saw beside the pool, there was a little gate that pedestrians could walk out, and there were all these people coming in and out with their dogs. So we just kind of, like, waited for someone to open the gate from the inside, and then we left in from the outside. So... You know, we had access was the first part of the problem of getting in there. Um, and our assignment was just to write about how is this uh, killing affected this community. So it was a gated community. Um, not a lot of people knew each other. And we sort of walked around for a little bit, you know, looking for people who were out and about rather than knocking on doors. And um, one of the first people we saw was a woman about my age who was mixed race, and she was walking a big pit bull. And I said to her, oh, my God, what a beautiful dog. I have a pit bull, too. And we just struck up this conversation about the dog. And she says, oh, well, you know, this is my son's dog, and he's 15, and he's supposed to be walking this damn dog. But ever since this happened, it happened right over there. And she points to the grass right where Trayvon's body was laying. And it was, you know, a stone throw from their house. And she said, but ever since it happened, my son won't go out and walk the dog. He's scared to be out here walking the dog. And I was like, okay, there's a story. You know, there's this mom who has nothing to do with Trayvon or the neighborhood watch guy. But her son's too scared to walk his own dog in the neighborhood. And so I kind of focused in on her. And we, we really chatted about our boys were the same age. You know, the, the dogs were the same breed. So we kind of had this, like, mom conversation before I started interviewing her for the story. Did you think about Trayvon's parents or friends? or Was there a... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. An angle you pursued first or because you came to it late it was like they were already overwhelmed and people were already chasing I his mom and, yeah. and she wasn't talking to me then they'd hired a lawyer and all yeah. that time right she was the closest to it but she was also obvious this was a stranger right you know, still and, and affected her son didn't even know Trayvon it wasn't like one of his friends but yet this was so impactful on her kid that his whole way of life was being changed right you know um, I pulled the beginning of this story for Lane to read. So this is so so. I mean, let, let's just say so. You you talking to this woman, and at some point, obviously, she finds out you're a reporter, and this is what you're doing here, and she goes along with like um, that. You know, you're telling her, I think there's a story in what's happening with you and your son, and you, she was good with that. Yeah, my, my line is usually the same way. I usually say, I can't imagine what you're going through. I can't imagine what it's like to be you. But I'd really like to be able to explain that to our readers, that it's not just this one family that's affected. Right. Um, and, and the way that she now, you know, a lot of it became about her new worries for her son, too. Not just that he was afraid, but what was his world going to look like for him? Right. In a place you go got like Skittles and a Snapple, and a, you, know, you end up dead by your front door. Right. So... Um, ironically, this, the community where these people live was called The Retreat, so the story was called The Retreat. These days, Cheryl Brown has to walk the dog. For a month, ever since her son heard someone screaming for help and her daughter called 911 and everyone heard of the loud snap of a gunshot, Brown's children have been afraid to go outside. Her youngest daughter, who is nine, won't even look out the window. 
She keeps seeing the dead teen's body. It could have easily been my son, said Brown. He wears hoodies all the time. Brown, a 40-year-old single mom who says she's, quote, mostly black, moved into the retreat at Twin Lakes last year. She chose the gated subdivision of identical townhomes because it's racially diverse. Lots of children live there. And she said, quote, it seems so safe. Then, on February 26th, Neighborhood Watch Captain George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin, 17, as he walked from a 7-Eleven with iced tea and a bag of Skittles. Now, Brown's children linger inside, and she does dog duty. On Wednesday, her white boxer, Saki, led her along the sidewalk, then turned into a manicured path stretching between two rows of townhouses. Brown stopped and pointed to a patch of shade beneath a scrawny maple tree. This is where Trayvon was killed, she said. He was almost home. No blood stains the grass where he lay. No flowers or football or skittles have been placed there to remember the teenager whose death has sparked a national outcry. A memorial of balloons, teddy bears, and cans of Arizona iced tea is growing outside the front gate. Inside the fence, everything still looks the same, except it's not. Were you, uh, were you looking at what everybody else was doing in that moment, like other other media, and and did you find a lot of original stories, or did it feel like the horde was sort of following all in the same sort of general direction, answering the same questions? Well, see, I misremembered. That was a whole month after the shooting. I thought it was only a couple of days. That was a month. So by then, every story had been told time and time again. And everyone's time. gone, probably. And we were there. I believe we were there because there was a rally. There was like a, a rally in the African-American church that was nearby. And we were covering that for a news story. And they were saying, oh, find a feature story while you're there. <laughs> so this was a twofer type of a, a trip that I definitely was trying to think, like, what what hasn't been done? What haven't I read about this story? I was going to say, it seems like the best narratives off the news, it's, it's all about the thinking, you know, like thinking about who's been affected, thinking about that angle that nobody else has done. I mean, I'm reminded, I, I know Eli Saslow, who we're both big fans of, he did the story about the college student had, who had survived a shooting. And like nobody had done that angle. There'd been all these shootings and, and that sort of like, hey, this isn't just about the death toll. It's about all those other people. Um, and he went back to Newtown, parents, a year later, and, you know, those kind of things. I mean, I I think we're so driven as an industry to, to you know, in the moment and what we're going to get today and tomorrow. And we don't think about sometimes going back or looking at different points of view. Yeah, and people's perspectives change over time, you know. Right. And when you come back a month or especially a year later and something still profoundly change the way people live. I, I think that's really powerful. And I know I know you believe this too, but I, it's not you've you got to do more than just revisit the drama. It's not just an excuse to kind of come tell this compelling moment, especially when they're big national stories, because the drama has been out there. Yeah. Um, talk a little about Pulse Nightclub. I mean, so that happens in Orlando, which is uh, I, I don't even know how far a drive it is from here. I haven't. Okay, from from Tampa, and um, you ended up doing a couple stories from there. One was uh, about a young man struggling, I guess, to come out, and and the other was uh, about a drag queen. Um, yeah, we, so I think the shooting happened on a Saturday night, and uh, our editor called us Sunday morning and said, I want to dispatch you to Orlando pack a bag for a couple of days and just see what you can find. Well, I think we said 12 reporters, and so somebody had the gay community, somebody had the cops, somebody had the families of the victims, somebody had the hospital. I'm like, what do I have? And she's like, find something nobody else has. So it was one of those awful assignments where like, everybody else has all the good assignments, and 
I got to do something else different entirely. So I didn't know where to even begin. And um, my son had just gotten into uh, Northwestern University, and he's on his Facebook page. And as I'm packing my bag to get ready to go and telling him what I'm going to do, he said, oh, my God, there's this kid who's going to be in my freshman class who lives, like, two doors down from this nightclub. He said, maybe he could help you find somebody in the neighborhood to talk to or something like that. I'll take whatever I can get at that point in time, you know. So I texted Tucker got his the kid's phone number. I texted him and said, I'm going to be in Orlando in two hours. Can I meet you at the Starbucks? He was like, sure. I said, this 18-year-old kid, and he'd been a newspaper editor of his high school, so he was all about doing journalism, you know, and he wanted to help me however he could. And uh, we sat and talked at the Starbucks for a couple hours about all these different angles we could find and all these different people he knew, and his mom worked at the hospital, and his sister knew somebody who from, from her, one of her groups who'd been killed. And then we were kind of, like, brainstorming all these ideas, and then he's like, well... I really should go to this rally tonight. There was like a big, like a vigil, I guess it wasn't a rally, like a candlelight vigil. I really should go, like as a newspaper person, I should go and cover this in my community, but I'm kind of afraid because I'm gay, but I haven't come out and nobody knows it, and I don't know what pe- people are going to be supportive or they're going to be anti-gay, and, it's, and I'm like, okay, I'm having all these like firecrackers in my head. Like, I never thought that this kid would be the story, ever, ever, ever. But he's in such anguish at 18 years old, just got into the college of his choice, got voted student journalist of the year. Does he suck it up and put his big boy pants on and go be a journalist? Or does he be a really frightened gay 18-year-old who doesn't, hasn't even come out to his parents yet, you know? And so I, I quickly turned the lens back toward him and uh, said, what, what if I follow you to this candlelight vigil tonight and he still wasn't sure he was going to go so there was like a nice back and forth and yeah I hadn't set out to write about him at all and I presume he told his family before your story came out right yeah he told his mom that night and then I called his mom the next day and then um so that was just you're casting about you are trying to find whatever whoever whatever angle you can and in a in a moment where I I can't even imagine how many media were here in Orlando. And you couldn't get near anything by then everything yeah. had been cordoned off and it was all a crime scene and yeah. So I was using him as like I wanted him to be my fixer, you know, and mm-hmm. end up being the story. The the and the drag queen, talk about the drag queen. So then we we did that story and then we were we stayed, you know, for a couple of days in this town that was really in I mean, everybody was was afraid and, and not sure why this had happened there. Um, and so the, the Pulse Club that got, you know, where the massacre happened had been closed, and it was a big gay nightclub. And there was one other big gay nightclub in Orlando that all the people were going to instead of to try to, like, re-get their community together, you know, like, who's, who's still standing and we're all there for each other in solidarity. So... Um, they had said they didn't want any media to come to this nightclub, and so I just went in with my purse and my phone, and and the with the photographer went in just with her phone, and we were trying to be very inconspicuous. And this drag queen got up and gave the most like eloquent eulogy off the you know off the top of her head, and in this very emotionally charged room. And I took notes on my napkin in my purse from the back of the bar, and then wrote this little narrative. Did you tell them <laughs> that you were writing? I did afterwards, yeah. I tried to interview her, and, and she didn't really want to talk to me. Um, but I had great quotes from 
the moment. And again, it was just one of those like, okay, I don't really need an interview. I've got this whole observation of this moment. This is just this moment of this drag queen right. trying to make sense of what happened and, and inspire her people to move on. Which kind of goes dovetails back to our early the earlier podcast about short stories because really this was a short story too. Uh, oh, it was. I, I, I think this was three hundred words. Yeah, it was. Um, but uh, and I think I. And it's interesting. So, you know, one of the lessons of narrative off the news, I mean, the bigger the story, and I liked your, like, the pebbles, you know, uh, seeing the ripples of the of the, the ripples of the story and how how many people are affected. And, you know, you can you can catch one of those ripples. It doesn't have to be somebody really close to it. It could be somebody who's, um, you know, still feeling it. I mean, the whole city of Orlando was probably feeling it in that moment. Absolutely. And a, I think, you know, I know our readers, and I know they might not have been completely sympathetic to a whole big story about a drag queen if it started when she was putting on her hair and makeup, if it started with her backstage. But in that moment where all the feels were going on, it was worth capturing. So we'll we'll end this podcast with just a little snippet of that. that, uh, This is from uh, that scene that Lane's talking about. This is the woman standing on the stage, and uh, this is how the story ends. She and five other performers staged the event Wednesday to raise money for the victims' families and for Pulse employees. More than 100 people of all ages and races had come, dropping 20s in a jar by the door. Don't take life for granted, Angelica said, as flamingo pink strobes strike the room. Or your freedom. Freedom comes with a price. And we never realize how many people had to fight for us just to have a choice. And when somebody tries to attack that, her voice cracked. She hung her head, wiped her glittery eyes. Well, that is the true definition of a demonic spirit. Two men who had worked with her at Pulse came on stage and laced their arms around her shaking shoulders. She leaned on them, weeping. The throng of people approached, thrusting money into her hands. We are all God's people. We have to turn to him now, Angelica said. Jesus hung out with gay people. He didn't care who you were. For a moment, silence lingered. Then the MC climbed under the runway and raised her arms. I want to hear some music, she called to the DJ. I should uh, remind people that if you want to find any of these stories, the best way really is to uh, put in Lane's name in Google and say, for instance, Pulse Nightclub, and you'll find it. You could try on our website, but it's they're hard to find. Um, all right. If you have questions for Lane about any of these stories we've talked about or any others, please email it to write Lane. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N e at tampabay.com thanks for listening and join us again next wednesday morning for the next episode this podcast was produced by denise keenan music was composed and performed by dan de gregory softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.